Tonight at Ground Zero Meetings, we're going to continue with our, our teachings uh, going through the Bible. Uh, tonight's message is on the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is the, the beginning of the major prophets. You know, the, the next several books are all the prophetic books of the Old Testament. And Isaiah was, you know, one of the, the major prophets that was in Israel in, in the Old Testament. He lived approximately somewhere between seven, eight hundred years before Christ. You know, he was in the in Jerusalem when the final kings were uh, were there before they got taken over by you know Assyria and Babylon and uprooted once and for all. And um, <clears throat> you know that he was, you know prophesying judgment on Israel and the, specifically the leaders in Israel for, you know, because there was a lot of temple, you know, worship that they would look to idols. They would, you know, have a lot of corruption, you know, power in the, in the, in the religious sects that they were taking advantage of the poor. They were, you know, charging them, taxing them, you know, and, and it was a very corrupt system. You know, and God over and over and over again would tell them that you need to change their ways. You know, as we've been going through, you know, the Bible, we, we continue to see the same pattern, you know, from Moses all the way through the books of Kings and Samuels and Chronicles, you know, the book of Judges, you know, every single book we see God is calling us into repentance and to change our ways and that he has mercy and he has grace for us and he's meeting us in these places and he, and he wants us to overcome the areas in our life that we struggle. You know, in Isaiah 1.18, it's one of my favorite scriptures for a couple of reasons. One is serious and one's kind of funny. But it says, you know, the first thing he says is, come reason with me. You know, God is inviting us into a conversation. God is inviting us into a relationship. God is inviting us to bring what we're struggling to the table and chat with Him. You know, and it, it's so important that we realize that God is this relational God. God is not this judgmental God that's trying to send us all to hell. As many of us grew up in religion and grew up in religious churches and we were most likely the misbehaviors so we were getting sent to hell on a regular basis as kids. You know, and what I learned when I grew up and I started reading the Bible for myself for the first time as an adult, I ran into this loving God. You know, and, and many say that, well, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different. No, they're not. They're really not. When you look in the Scripture, you see mercy and grace woven through every single book that he's inviting us into this relationship. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the sacrifice was finally sacrificed. That Jesus paid for our sins. In the Old Testament, they had to, to continue in, in the in the works of sacrificing the oxes and the and the sheep and the and whatever it is that they'd have. You know, they would bring grain offerings and, and oil offerings and in various different sacrifices and, and to pay for their sins. You know, where we get the term scapegoat from 
is that they would put their hands on the goat and that they would cast their sins upon it. They would sacrifice it and then they would send its twin goat off into the wilderness. And that's where most of us have been called the scapegoats at some point in our lives because we get blamed for the sins. But here, you know, Isaiah, you know, is beginning to, to start this, this journey with Israel and he's telling them to go reason with God. You know, and he says, although your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. Now, for many of us, you know, things that are crimson or are, are dark red, you know, with, with the technology that we have and the textiles that we have, it's easy for us to get a color, you know, that's dark red. For them, you know, for to make something dark red, they would have natural dyes. They would use clays and, and different plants and, and different, you know, things in the environment to create a dye. And technically, Kool-Aid would be a stronger dye than they would have. For any of us that have dumped red Kool-Aid on something white, it instantly turns pink. But you would have to dump Kool-Aid and Kool-Aid and Kool-Aid and Kool-Aid. You would have to dip it over and over and over and over again and over and over and over again to get something dark red. And it's an illustration of our sins and how many times we've sinned that we have not just sinned once. We have not even sinned once today. And yet Jesus comes along and makes our sins white as snow. And here's the illustration of Jesus' snow for all of you that love wintertime as much as I do. But over and over again, you know, Isaiah is going around the streets and prophesying, talk to God, turn from your sins, change your ways. You know, in all and throughout this, you know, as you go through chapter after chapter, it seems like Isaiah is just casting judgment on everybody. But in through every chapter, there's this message of grace and mercy. You know, and we get to chapter 6, you know, and Isaiah has a, a moment as he sees, you know, God as the captain of hosts. And he says, woe is me, the man of unclean lips. You know, here he is speaking for God, but he recognizes his own sin nature and saying, I'm not perfect either. Like, I need God. You know, and we have to come to this understanding that we need more Jesus every single day. You know, just because we had a moment, just because we we stepped over from an unbelief to a belief, just because we have some understanding, just because whatever the reason is, does not mean that we're done growing in our relationship with God. And it's so important that we realize that I need more Jesus today. I need a deeper understanding of who he is. I need to grow in my relationship with God so that I can break free from the things that continue to ensnare me today. Yes, am I doing the things that I used to do when I was young? No, I'm not. You know, am I am I partying? Am I, you know, living the way that I used to over a decade ago? No, I'm not. But you know what? The more that I begin to understand who Jesus is, I'm more accountable for my actions. And yet I still continue to think, say, and do things that are sin. You know, so we need 
more Jesus on a regular basis. You know, you know, it's so important that we we realize, you know, the power of the Bible. <clears throat> you know, Isaiah has got you know sixty six chapters, and there's roughly around twenty two messianic prophecies woven in and throughout this book. So here's this man who lived seven eight hundred years before. Jesus was going to arrive on the earth, and yet when he's speaking, there's these little things that were prophesying his coming. You know, and, and you know, Israel was waiting for that king of kings to come along and deliver them from the oppression of the, the countries and the kingdoms that were around them. You know, so in Isaiah 7, you know, he says, you know, behold, a virgin will bear a child, a son, and we will call him Emmanuel. Now, still to this day, that's a miracle. You know, we we're, haven't had any virgin births, the less I knew. You know, the fact that, that we claim that Jesus was born of a virgin, you know, is a pretty radical claim. You know, you know, and beyond that, we believe that he was resurrected from the dead. You know, and it, it this challenges, you know, our belief system. And it challenges other people around us because we're saying that he's the payment of sin, that he's the Messiah, that he was the one that came and paid for our sins, and he was born in a supernatural way. See, for me, I had to digest this. You know, I left the Old Testament alone. Like, I'm not going near that. Like, Adam and Eve, not ready for that. When I got saved, I believed in evolution. You know, I'm not going anywhere near Moses and the burning bush and all the mushrooms he consumed to see this thing talk to him. Not doing it. Noah's Ark, not happening. Not even trying to touch that. Jonah and the whale, not touching it. You know, all these, you know, pre or Bible stories that we learned as kids, like, I'm like, I can't do it. It's like Santa Claus. Like, I, Tooth Fairy, I'm sorry, I'm, I can't even go there. But like, now I have to focus on Jesus. You know, and I'm trying to figure out this higher power stuff. I'm trying to figure out this relationship with God stuff. And I'm coming to church and I'm hearing this and I'm hearing that. And I'm like, ugh, I'm struggling. And I had to put everything I thought I knew on the shelf and said, I got to start over. I got to put everything I think I know and just put it aside. And I picked up the Bible for the very first time. I was 30 years old. And I began to read it for myself. And until someone really does that, they do not technically know what they believe. They're just going on the opinion and what other people are saying. And so often, we don't even really know what we believe. So when we get into crunch time, when life on life terms happens, when trials happen, tribulation happens, crunch time happens, we don't have that relationship with God And we don't have a foundation to trust. So it's easy for us to go back and do it in our own strength. Because we don't realize who Jesus is and how that impacts our lives. For me, I had to figure out who Jesus was to me. Do I believe that this man was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a sinless death, three days later was resurrected, came out of the grave... And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven, and then the Holy Spirit came. 
Like, there's a lot going on in that. Like, I can just leave the whole Old Testament alone for half a second and say, do I believe that someone could actually get resurrected from the dead? Well, I believe in God. That's not what I said. Do I believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? And if you're struggling with that, it's okay. Because it's a supernatural event and it's not normal. However, if I can believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, I have no problem with Adam and Eve. I have no problem with Moses in the burning bush. I have no problem with Jonah you know, in the, in the whale. I have no problem with any of the Old Testament stories that would trigger Santa Claus in my head. Why? Because if I can believe in this miracle that a man could get raised from the dead, that why can't I believe in any other miracle that's in the Bible? And I had to digest that. Do I believe this? I don't know. And I had to keep coming back to that. Do I believe this? I don't know. Do I believe this? I don't know. And I would keep reading and I would keep struggling. And at some point, I had to choose, am I going to believe this or not? Because we can believe in God and struggle, struggle with the resurrection. Well, I can believe in Jesus, but I struggle with the resurrection. However, Jesus isn't Jesus unless he was resurrected. And that is when our faith goes to a whole nother level. I've run into many people in my life that believe in God, would even say believe in Jesus, but yet have no faith in Jesus because they're not quite sure if he was, if they believe in the resurrection or not. Why are you going to heaven? I'm a good person. Eh, wrong. What do you mean? Why are you going to go to heaven or hell? Well, I'm a good person. I'm not going to go to hell. Eh, wrong answer. You know, and so many Christians don't even know. And that's what's crazy. Why don't they know? Because they haven't really read the Word. Why don't they know? They believe the philosophy that is the Christian church, which is horrible. Until we get into the Word and know what we believe and why we believe it, there's a big hole from belief to faith. But when we can go into Scripture and say, you know what? This Scripture in Isaiah that talks about a virgin birth, and in Matthew it talks about a virgin birth, you know what? I'm going to believe that. Why? Because I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. So if I can digest one miracle, the other miracles kind of fall into place. You know, so it's so important that we realize that there's all these prophecies that foreshadow the coming of Jesus. You know, there's approximately 325 messianic prophecies woven through the Old Testament. You know, that for him to fulfill those scriptures in his life technically is like taking the state of Texas and covering it with quarters and putting one red one and that you would just randomly walk around blindfold and pick out that red one. It's impossible. The fact that one man in the matter of three years, well, you know, there's prophecies of his, you know, his youth too, but most of those prophecies were fulfilled, you know, within three years. The likelihood is impossible. And that's what we believe, is that we believe in something that's impossible. And because we can believe in something that's impossible, that he can come into our lives and the things that we're struggling with today 
and move things, move mountains, heal families, heal marriages, heal children, heal finances, break off addictions, break off depression, break off anxiety, heal a broken heart, heal a broken mind. We believe that. Why? Because Jesus got resurrected from the dead. I'm not grabbing on to straws here. I'm believing in what the Bible says. And he says that he came to be a healer. Now every time do we pray, do we see what we get, you know, do we get what we pray for? No. Why? I'm not God. You know, he's not a genie in the Bible. I don't get to just rub my Bible and be like, come on, Jesus. Give me what I want. It doesn't work that way. I pray for crazy things. And if it doesn't happen, then it must not have been God's will. However, I've prayed for crazy things, and crazy things have happened. Therefore, God's will must be crazy at times. You know, so I really encourage you to, to pray for crazy things. Pray for healing. Pray for restoration. Pray for finances. Pray for this. Pray for that. Pray for your kids. Pray for your marriage. Pray for something that you would say is impossible and say, God, I'm releasing it to you. I'm going to trust you. Your will be done. Your will be done. You know, in Isaiah 12, it says, God not only has power and strength, but He's gracious and He uses it to save us. You know, here again, in the Old Testament, He's talking about salvation. He's talking about His power. He's talking about His strength. Now, here's where Isaiah goes off the chain a little bit. In Isaiah 20, God tells him to take off all his clothes and walk around Jerusalem prophesying to all these people. And Isaiah, I can only imagine, was like, what? Did I hear you correctly? And he took off all his clothes and started wandering around Jerusalem butt naked telling people they need God. It says, Isaiah 20, verse 2, it says, At the same time the Lord spoke to Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go, remove your sackcloth from your body, and take off your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. The Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, for a sign and the wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, I shall... Bring a king from Assyria and lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. The Bible is awesome. Where else can you say I'm learning about God and thinking about buttocks at the same time? It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Now, this is a sign of obedience. You know, Isaiah is on a whole other level. You know, we can only pray that God doesn't start moving and bring the naked prophet back into the church. Although, it might be kind of interesting. You've been called to walk around Utica buck naked for the next three years telling people they need Jesus. That when we're obedient to God, is He going to call us to be naked? I don't think so. However, there's things that He asks us that are pretty extreme at times. And it's unbelievable 
And I don't know if I can do that, God. Well, technically you can't without Him. But when we're obedient, when we lay it down, when we trust, when we take a step, when we put everything in God's hands, that He is strong and powerful and gracious to guide us through whatever that circumstance is. He's asking us to trust Him. He's asking us to be obedient. He's asking us to to be vulnerable before Him. He's asking us to come before Him as broken kids as we all are and saying, take me and do your will. You know, you know, there's all sorts of extreme things throughout the Bible. You know, and we have to realize that there's areas in our life that are pretty extreme. Some of you are struggling in various different ways. I know just a little bit that, you know, there's marriages that are struggling. There's parents with their kids are struggling. There's courts. There's all sorts of things going on. There's finances that are struggling. There's bills that need to get paid. There's loans that need to get paid back. There's bankruptcy on the, that's coming on the horizon. There's addictions in your family. There's addictions in your children. There's addictions in your parents. You know, there's problems in our bodies. And we want these things to change, but we have to do it God's way. So often we want the change, we want the end result, but we don't want to go through the process. And it's so important that we believe and trust that what God is asking us to do won't kill us. Now, here's where the switch begins to happen. You know, there's 66 books in Isaiah. There's 66 books in your Bible. Kind of interesting. You know, as you're reading through Isaiah, you know, there's this call to to repentance. There's this judgment. You know, there's this, you know impending doom that he's going to use these you know kingdoms around Israel to bring judgment you know we see that all throughout the old testament well we see that through the first 39 books of Isaiah that they almost line up perfectly for each book of Isaiah almost matches each book of what's going on in the bible now we transfer over into book 40 Book 40 would be the New Testament. That's where Matthew shows up on the scene. In book 40 of Isaiah, all of a sudden this new message of grace begins to get poured out. It matches so crazily that the book of Isaiah matches exactly the way the Bible is laid out. And it was literally written 800 years before Jesus, and the canon of the Bible didn't take place until around 300 years after Christ's death. So there's like 1,100 years span between the time that Isaiah wrote Isaiah and the time that they decided that this is what the Bible is going to look like, and yet it matched perfectly. It is pretty crazy. It is pretty crazy. So in Isaiah, Isaiah 43, it says, There's a voice, the one crying in the wilderness, to prepare the way of the Lord, make straight into the desert, a highway for God. What happens? What's the first thing that happened? John the Baptist. What's he doing? This exact scripture. That it was written 800 years before John the Baptist was even conceived. And yet he's writing exactly what someone's going to do that he's never met. This is why the Bible is so powerful is when we get into it and we study it and we realize that this is the history of our faith. It's not a big book of rules. That there's these amazing stories as we begin to learn how these things have parallels, that it's like this supernatural event started to take place 
that were like, wow, this God that we believe in used men and women to write a book that is supernaturally powerful, that there's no way that this stuff could take place. There's no way that some guy that's naked is writing a book about what some other guy is going to do, and yet he ends up doing it. And yet it's exactly the way that the Old Testament and the New Testament play out. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You know, here's Jesus coming into the equation, and he's that we can turn our, our fears over to him, and he can come into these situations, and we learn to trust him, and that he holds on to us. Why? Because he's that friend that's closer than a brother, that he laid down his life for us. You know, over and over throughout Isaiah are these crazy supernatural prophecies that relate to us today. You know, I'm going to skip to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, to me, is is an extremely powerful scripture because it almost seems like it belongs in the New Testament. It's so powerful in the description of who Jesus is that the Jews don't read it because they don't want people to be like, hey, that sounds like Jesus. That it's almost like one of these books that's hidden. That Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed our report, and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and root out the dry ground. He is form and comely. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we desire but him. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hide as if we were, hide our faces from him. We are despised and, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him by strickening him, smitten by God, afflicted. But he, his wounds, for our transgressions. He's wounded for our sins. He is bruised for our iniquities. He's bruised for our sins against other people. Chastisement for our peace came upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. You know, at that time, the Romans weren't a superpower. And that they used crucifixion that wasn't even really a, a means of torture or a means of punishment at that time. That he was healed by, we're healed by his stripes, that they whipped him 39 times. All were like a, a sheep gone astray. We have turned every one from his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, a sheep before the shearers. He was silent. So he opened not his mouth. When he stood before Pilate and Herod, he didn't argue. You know, he was practically silent. That when Pilate asked him questions, he would answer like, well, you said that. When he stood before Herod and he's mocking him and he's saying all these things, he didn't say a word. Like, how could Isaiah know that that was going to take place? He was taken from prison for our judgment. And who we will declare on his generations. He was cut off the land from the living.
for our transgressions. For my people, he was stricken. And on and on throughout this scripture, it it defines exactly what Jesus did in that time. You know, if you're reading in, in um, John 19, I believe it is, where Jesus is, you know, being led to Pontius Pilate, then Herod, then he was whipped, he was flogged, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was led to Golgotha, which is the mount that they had the, the crosses on, you know, over and over again. And it's explaining exactly what the events that were going to take place on that day, 800 years prior, you know, that he would be the, the lamb that was slain. You know, on and on and on through this scripture, you know, it, it talks exactly about who Jesus was. It says, By knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, and he shall bear the iniquities of us all. Therefore, with divine upon him, the portion will be great, and he shall divide the spoil and the strong. He shall pour out his own soul unto death, and his numbers for our transgressions. He bore our sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressor. <clears throat> that he was the payment for our sins, that what he did on that day sets us all free. You know, and once again, do I believe in the resurrection? Do I believe that Jesus paid that price for me? You know, this is such an important piece. It's the foundation. It's the cornerstone of the Christian belief system. You know, it's not because I go to church. It's not that I claim that I'm a Christian. It's not that I have a cross. It's not that I own a Bible. It's all because do I really believe that this man lived this sinless death and, and died as a sacrifice for my sin? You know, and I have to make this personal. You know, he died for your sins. No, he died for my sins. And each one of us has to make that declaration. Do you believe that he died for your sin? And when I believe that, it takes me to a new place in my understanding of who he is. You know, and... <clears throat> Over and over again through, you know, these books of Isaiah, it's, it's talking about the grace. It's talking about his mercy. It's talking about, you know, what he's going to do. You know, once again, you know, Jesus being Jesus, you know, the likelihood that this would take place is very slim. That Jesus is, is in the temple, you know, and at that time they would have a scroll. A scroll would be this long piece of parchment. And it would be rolled up on both ends, you know, and they would unroll a little bit and read it and then roll it that way. So the next time that they would unroll it, it would be in the next chapter. So it was kind of the same way that we would turn pages in a book. It's the way that they would unroll and roll the scripture is that it would move along because it was written linear. That it, you know, books in the way that we have books today with pages hadn't really been invented yet. That's brought in, you know, by the Romans you know, and the Greeks wrote letters, and that's why we see a lot of letters in the New Testament, Paul writing letters to all these different churches. But the Romans were the ones that took those scrolls and kind of made them into pages so you could flip them. Kind of tricky. So here's, you know, Jesus in the temple, and they hand him the scroll. So he unrolls it. And then he reads this. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, 
and to open up the prisons for those who are bound. I proclaim that this is the year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort to whom they are mourned. And when he gets done reading this entire scripture, he rolls it up and says, this has been fulfilled today, and passes it on to the next guy. And they all freak out. Like, who are you saying? Are you saying you're God? And, you know, and it would just cause this commotion because he's saying that, you know, the me that this scripture is talking about is the me that's reading this right now. And what's the chances that, once again, Isaiah, 800 years prior, wrote a scripture and the chances that this scripture is rolled up in this big scroll of Isaiah and it just happens to get passed to Jesus and he unrolls it and it talks exactly about who he is and what he's about to do. And he can say, and he can say with definity that this has been fulfilled. That I am the one that's fulfilling this. You know, and it made the, the Jews lose their minds. You know, and once again, do we believe in the supernatural power of the Bible? Some of us do. Some of us don't. Some of us think it's just a book. Some of us think, oh, it's got some good stuff in it. Some of us believe that it is the, the, the power of God's word. You know, and each one of us has to make that decision because nobody can make that decision for us. Is that something that I can base my life upon? For me, I have chosen yes. You know, I've struggled with that through the years. But at some point, because of the craziness of the way that the Bible is laid out, you know, I've been able to step across into saying, you know what, I'm going to have faith in his word because he continues to show me over and over again how these prophecies you know, are so supernatural that there's no way that these things could be possible. You know, in Isaiah 64, 8, it says, The Lord our Father, that we are clay and that you are the potter, that we are all work in your hand. You know, do we really believe that, that God is molding us? Do we really believe that his hands are in our lives moving and shaping us? You know, and this is something that we have to really wrestle with is the sovereignty of God. Is God in control? If he is in control, then everything that we're going through right now is exactly his plan. Does it make sense to us? No. A lot of times it won't. We will disagree with him. You'll be like, um, you made a mistake. And here's the list of mistakes I think you made. Why? Because I'm higher than God. I know better than God. But when I surrender myself and say, God, you have a plan. I don't like this part of the journey right now. This kind of sucks. To be honest with you, I just let you know, I, um, I think you could do better. You know, my grandmother, before she'd passed, sent me a newspaper clipping. You know, and I have it still somewhere. You know, I think I have a clue where it is. It's in my attic. It's a joke. But anyway, <clears throat> it's up there somewhere. And it, and it talks from the, the first person that this piece of clay. You know, this piece of clay, you know, all of a sudden gets grabbed by the potter. And the piece of clay is like, God, that's uncomfortable. I don't like it. As he needs it and he's pulling it and he's prying it and he's rolling it and, it, and the clay is shouting like, this is uncomfortable. Stop. I don't like this. And more and more that piece of clay is getting molded 
And more and more that clay is yelling, stop, this hurts, I don't like this. And more and more as the potter puts it on the wheel and starts spinning it, it's like, I'm very confused right now, I don't like this at all. You know, and more and more the hands are soothing, but yet there's pinches and, and pulls to, to mold. And then it's thrown into the furnace, and the clay is screaming at the top of its lungs, Ow, oh, this hurts, stop. You just got to stand there a little bit longer. No, stop, it hurts. And eventually it gets out and it gets a glaze upon it. Oh, I don't like it. it you know, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's on me. And at some point that clay looks in the mirror and what it became, and it became this beautiful piece of pottery that has a function, that has a purpose, that has an anointing, that has been molded by the potter. Everything that we're going through in our lives is God moving and adjusting, and we're like, oh, this hurts, I don't like it. And he's grabbing, and he's pulling, and he's moving. And every once in a while, like, oh, that's soothing. I'm like, oh, wait, move, you moved me. I was kind of enjoying that. And all of a sudden, it's like we're disagreeing. Like, oh, this is uncomfortable. I don't like it. And then there's times that we get thrown in the furnace. And it sucks. It sucks. It's hard. It's like, God, where did you go? This is so painful right now. But to mature us, to strengthen us, because a piece of clay, even though you could mold it into the perfect piece of pottery, if it's not put into the furnace, it's useless. That it would get tipped over. That it could get molded by something else could come along. Life circumstances could hit it, and it could be dented. It could be ruined. But once you make it into what you want it to be made and you put it into the fire as God is doing with most of us in this room. At some point, we're getting pushed and pulled and molded and there's part of us that's in the fire right now and we're like, I don't like this at all. And He's at work. He's at work in every single one of our lives right now. As difficult as it is, do we believe that He is the potter and we are the clay? See, do we believe that He is sovereign? Do we believe that in His hands? See, there was many years ago I heard a man preach, and I don't remember anything but this piece. There's times that we don't understand God's hands. But if we know Jesus, we know His heart. And if we can trust in God's heart, then we can accept His hands. See, Apart from knowing Jesus and that He loves us and that He laid His life down for us, that when we go through difficult things, we fight God. That we take our power back and we, we try to do it our way. We get back to our manipulative ways. We, we try to, to scam and scheme and lie and, and do this and do that and, and try to manipulate. Or do we trust God when we're going through the process, when we're being molded, when we're going through the furnace? Do we trust that He has a greater plan? Many of us should be dead. I should be dead. I should be definitely dead. If not dead, in jail or in prison. If I got busted for all the crimes that I committed, I would not have probably seen the light of day. And yet in His mercy, in His grace, He reached into my life and pulled me out of my darkest moments and says, I love you. 
I have a plan for you. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. But God, it hurts. My life has sucked. My life has been so painful. My life has been nothing but a rack. Because we're the clay that keeps trying to get off the board. And get away from his hands. Because every time that he brings correction, we run from it. At least I did. At some point, when I was broken enough, when I'm tired enough, when I'm sick and tired of being tired, I decided that something needed to change. And that thing that needed to be changed was me. I stopped blaming mom. I stopped blaming dad. I stopped blaming the man. I started blaming this and blaming that. And they're always out to get me. Yada, yada, yada. The, the list is as long as our arms of the stuff that we blame. And I said, you know what? The reason my life sucks is because I am the one that continues to screw it up. There's nobody in my life that screwed up my life more than me. And I have to get accept, I have to accept that. But then I have to realize that Jesus loves me and that he's paid the price for my sins. And if I don't accept that I'm the one that's screwing up my life, I can't repent. That it's always somebody else's fault. So I can accept a little bit of Jesus. I like this heaven stuff. That's cool, Jesus. But I don't like the whole idea that I'm a sinner and I need to come before you and repent of my sins so that you can save me from myself. Not save me from my parents. Not save me from the government. Not save me from the man. Save me from myself. And when I come to the understanding that I continue to screw up my own life, I can come to the understanding that I need Jesus to change the way I think and the way I feel and the way I act. And it has to happen on a regular basis. Because He's at work in each one of our lives, molding and shaping and 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 rearranging, putting us into the trial, building some part of our character, putting us in the furnace, establishing character. And that someday we look in a mirror and we say, look how far I've come. Where were most of you a year ago? Where were most of you five years ago? Where were most of us ten years ago? I know for me, 2005, I walked into the church for the first time that I was about to kill myself. I'd relapsed again. I had no hope. I didn't think that Jesus was Jesus. Some girl said, hey, do you want to come to church? And I'm like, it can't hurt me. I was in a crack house just a couple of days ago. And I went to church and I heard the message of Jesus, even though I got dragged to church as a kid. I'd never heard that He loved me enough to change me. That He could pay for every single thing I've ever done wrong if I would just come before Him and say, God, forgive me of my sins. That He's got a plan. Do we understand it? No. I don't know what's going to happen later today. Except this kid's going to ask me for chicken. Prophesy. There is always this message of hope in throughout every single book of the Bible. We can see His grace. We can see His mercy. We can see Jesus. And that's why this book is like no other book. We don't really know technically how Isaiah's life ended. However, in the Talmud, which is a Jewish historian book, it says that Manasseh, who was the king 
at that time of Israel got sick of Isaiah's crap and had him sawed in half. And so often we see the prophets of the Old Testament get martyred because the religious people don't like to hear that they need to change. And once again, we see that same martyrdom happen in Christ's life as he came back and loved the sinner and corrected the religious person. You know why? Because he's teaching that it's about a relationship. It's not about works. He's teaching about it's not rules and regulations. It's not the law. It's about grace and a relationship. So I just want everyone to know tonight that no matter where you're at, just ask Jesus into your life. Say, Jesus, I don't understand all this stuff. You know, I own a Bible. I don't own a Bible. If there's nobody that doesn't own a Bible, see me. I will give you a Bible before you leave. That each one of us has to take this next step and say, you know what? I got to figure this out. I got to put everything I think I know on the shelf and say, you know what? Who's Jesus? Who's Jesus to me? And begin to dive in and begin to learn. Do I really believe in the resurrection of Christ? Do I really believe that he paid for my sins? No one can answer that question but you. Would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, I just thank you so much. I thank you for all that you're doing in our lives, Lord. I thank you for your power that moves in and throughout our lives, Lord, that we can see your hand. We can see your grace. We can see your mercy. We can see how you saved us from ourselves. We can see how you saved us from death time and time again that we can see that you are merciful, that you're not just because we're not receiving the payments for all the crimes or the sins that we've committed. So, Lord, I pray that your grace would move in this room in a powerful way tonight, Lord. I pray that we would have an understanding that Jesus is bigger than we have ever really realized. Lord, help us to put aside our religiousness our rules, our regulations, and say, I need to grow in this relationship with you. Lord, help me to see how your scripture is constantly pointing me to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. Lord, I just thank you so much for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, many, many, many.